Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Chop wood, carry water. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Gino Chirio. Gino is an executive vice president with the insights-driven growth consultancy, Maddox Douglas where he helps organizations develop strategies and solutions to maintain relevance and realize competitive advantage. From creating, launching, and redefining brands to developing strategies for continually delivering new value, he uses a human-centered approach to focus organizations' efforts based on who they are, what they can leverage to win, and where they can uniquely deliver on market needs, now and into the future. His work on innovation and growth has been published in the Harvard Business Review. Gino and I talk about the struggles organizations have when it comes to remaining competitive and maintaining growth strategies in a complex environment. We recorded this episode on Gino's 50th birthday, and I appreciate him giving me the gifts of time and insight in our conversation. I've been lucky enough to collaborate on a number of innovation and design projects with Gino, and I'd like to thank him for joining me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Gino, it's a pleasure to have you on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Um, I am uh, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan, proud Chicagoan. Um, I, I'm here staying at home in my beautiful home in Avondale on the northwest side of the city with my beautiful wife, Kim. Um, I am a White Sox fan, even though I'm on the north side, um, also a Bears fan. I have two uh, incredible kids, uh, Claudia, who's 21, and Vincent, who's 18, uh, who are both you know, just ridiculously, uh, ridiculously incredible kids. Um, and um, I... We'll probably talk a little bit more about the, the trajectory that I had in terms of getting to the place I am now, but I yeah. Maddox Douglas, um, about to celebrate uh, 20 years with Maddox Douglas coming up in August. Um, so a lot of evolution over the course of the time that I've been there. Um, and currently, my focus is on uh, developing growth strategies for organizations, uh, making sure that I can help them uh, find out and what's next and how to be able to continuously create new value in a uh, increasingly competitive marketplace that isn't going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, and the uh, relevant skill sets and ways of doing things that are very different from the way things have been done uh, that allows for that to be a reality uh, for organizations to continually develop new uh, value and, and capture it and, uh, do it over and over again so that they maintain relevance and competitive advantage. Thank you. And, and you do a, a lot of work in the innovation and growth space. Uh, but Lisa, coming up on 20 years at Maddox Douglas, congratulations. Please. Yeah, a lot, a lot in the, just in the business world has changed quite a bit from a complexity uh, component in the 20 years. What do you, what do you think are some of the, the wildest changes that you've seen, like kind of from early in your career to uh, where we're at now? I think the thing that is probably most obvious to me is the, uh, the feeling that, I mean, not only do things move a ton faster, obviously. Um, and I have obviously grown and, um, and see the world very differently than I did 20 years ago or, or more uh, when I was working in you know agency land prior to coming to Matt Douglas. I just think that it's uh, there's a whole lot more focus on, uh, and I wish there was more focus on the uh, the need for purpose and the need for uh, organizations to be serving uh, a greater purpose than you know satisfying bottom lines and, and ultimately uh, shareholder expectations of quarterly earnings, um, which I know, you know, goes in kind of peaks and valleys and it feels like somehow we, we get into some you know, valley periods that feel a lot right. like the Gordon Eco days. 
um, <laughs> but progress is being made. And I think the evolution over the course of time in terms of business, when I was in you know, my early days of advertising and agency world in Chicago, um, things were much more uh, divided by, I mean, still divided by definitions of say ind industry boundaries or expertise sets. And I think a lot of that is broken down because of the need for uh, individuals and for organizations to continually take on new things um, and not be so kind of I don't know, restricted by the boundaries that have been uh, put in place that people forget we all, right? People like us all defined that way in the first place. Uh, and we can certainly see, see it in a different way. It just isn't easy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see a big, you know, like for, for me too, like you said, the, the, the speed and I think the complexity uh, has, you know, the problems aren't as straightforward as they were. And so I think that's where, I think that's where it's harder for corporations too to solve, solve new problems with the, the way that they always had. And, and that's one of the things where I see, you know, you had mentioned kind of like shareholder value and sometimes that like short-term view on, on, quarterly stock reports is almost in, uh, in, in, uh, I don't know, direct competition with trying to do breakthrough innovation because it, it takes a little bit of time. And sometimes I feel, uh, anything that's on the creative side is usually early on the chopping block when, <laughs> when budgets are getting cut. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with what you just said. The complexity, the speed, um, the fragmentation, the right technology is, you know, lower barriers to entry. Um, there's, I mean, when it, now that I think about it, right, by the way, today is my 50th birthday. Uh, Happy birthday. Thank you very much. So I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know, reflective or something today. I generally am anyway. But, you know, thinking back, I mean, there was no social media. There was, you know, no internet. Yeah. Um, and the, the speed at which communication travels and the way things can, you know, move uh, just in an instant does absolutely change the dynamic of the business world. And when you talk about competitive advantage, um, uh, Rita McGrath, who uh, teaches at Columbia, I've uh, written several books, you know, talks about the end of competitive advantage, at least the, the end of sustainable competitive advantage, because it's really difficult to, you know, double down and, you know, create a moat around your core business and, and really have it be the thing that continues to uh, to propel your organization forward right based upon creating greater efficiencies and creating that hierarchy that is really good at that and getting to the point where you're so big at scale that nobody can take you down um, you know those those days are you know are over and they will continue to become uh, you know more and more a thing of the past and more organizations uh, that are in that mold of, you know, being massive, having scale, uh, certainly is a competitive advantage in certain uh, instances, but they're not able to, to do the kind of uh, pivots, uh, learn the new ways of being able to approach the marketplace, uh, making sure that they're, you know, starting from a human-centered uh, need, solving needs starting point, um, and ensuring that they're, you know, not just staying very close to the core business, and trying to just defend it at every turn. So I, it's very difficult for organizations like that to, uh, well, it's difficult for all organizations to really create the kind of ongoing new value, uh, meeting needs in the marketplace and doing things that are beyond, you know, really uh, continuous improvement kind of uh, efficiency generating things that organizations are really good at. And it changes, it completely changes the dynamic of what it means to create strategy, what it means to execute within an organization, right, all the way through to culture, uh, it has impact on everything. Yeah, that the the culture piece too for me it becomes really. I think it becomes really interesting, especially you know these are these are companies that have been successful in the past, right? They 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 did something well and they grew and they continue to become more efficient. But I, I'm always curious on the culture side. One is it's almost as if um, they, they see it as a, they see their market or their opportunity one way. And so they, it's like, they can't even recognize threats because it's not, <laughs> it's not labeled like they used to have everything labeled. Right. And, and so that reaction becomes almost, it's like too late. It's almost after they're hit, they realize that they, they should have been, um, you know, kind of 
uh, lack of better terms that they, you know, and, and I apologize because I'm thinking about your, your HBR article, your Harvard Business Review article, right? It's like many of them don't have a portfolio for growth to look at different ways to, you know, protect the core or, you know, expand market or feature, let alone do something revolutionary. And with that ham-fisted uh, description, but if you don't mind, can you, can you uh, kind of sum up for, for listeners on the innovation side, you know, kind of that, that growth model and almost a, a portfolio approach to uh, drive growth and sustainability of a business? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, the need for having an innovation pipeline that you just mentioned in most organizations, really not having one or having one that is, you know, absolutely done on an ad hoc basis. Um, is more the norm than it is, you know, to have something that is really an organizing framework and a real uh, intentional, structured way of approaching uh, innovation and, and delivering new value, uh, and really kind of seeing it all together and, and understanding how it connects to the organization, right? How differences between different types of initiatives uh, in ways of realizing growth are. Uh, how close they are to the core business, how far away they are, and, and what that means in terms of the uncertainties, uh, uncertainties and approaches and risk, and all of that that goes into the, the, you know, the knowledge of knowing the difference between types of initiatives. You have to understand uh, in a portfolio mentality, we use uh, two by two, right? It's either yep. going to be a two by two or a VEN, right? Uh, it's a two-by-two two that it has on its y-axis capabilities of the organization, and on the bottom is you know, the capabilities that the organization, you know, has and knows very well, knows how to do it. Um, and on up to the top means that new capabilities would need to be created. Uh, and on the x-axis, you've got uh, customers, markets. Uh, on the left, uh, customers, markets that they know very well, that they serve currently. Uh, and then moving over to the right is are ones that are outside of that right now. It's uh, people that, uh, in markets that they don't serve. And if you can start to kind of visualize that, I know it's maybe hard to do it, but if you start at the bottom left of that, that uh, two by two, the right of the quadrants that are created by the, those two axes, you know, on the bottom left, you've got evolutionary, uh, which is incremental kind of, it's still innovation. It's still important. Um, but it's really about, you know, selling either more of the same stuff, you know, to the same people or selling enhanced stuff to the same people, right? Making sure that you're continually improving on the core business, right? And finding new ways to be able to, uh, to keep it fresh and uh, create incremental value. And that's in addition to continuous improvement and processes, uh, process improvements that allow you to do things more efficiently and make more money, right? Based on selling, making more off selling the same stuff, which is outside of the, purview of, you know, what I help organizations do because it isn't uh, really, you know, connected to delivering new value and innovation and solving need states that exist. So you got the evolutionary, which is where the majority of an organization's effort really should be because they, they know the customers that they're dealing with, the markets that they're serving, they know the they have the capabilities to deliver. And uh, you can really go through some kind of planning and business modeling that are more, uh, like the way that you've done business modeling in the past because it's very close to the business that you know very well and you can do things like you know some some kinds of projections and uh know a little bit more about what it's going to take to get that done right and, there's a little and, bit more certainty too right because it's it is a lot more familiar absolutely and with that certainty comes right the ability to uh at least with a reasonable amount of accuracy, say that you can estimate, you know, can project what uh, returns might be, you know, volume uh, in the traditional sense. And I mean, ultimately you're, you're, you're doing something that is very, you're, you're right that it's removing, uh, it's very close, it's more certain. And so you can use some more traditional uh, methods. And it also means that you're just trying to figure out a way, if you can get that, those kinds of initiatives, right, to market, Figuring out the way to be able to make them viable from a human-centered standpoint right, is about how do we make money from it. We know we can get it done feasibility-wise, and we know the market well enough to to reasonably, you know, know if we've done our research that there's a need state from a desirability standpoint. So you can start to see though the way that knowing which quadrant an initiative or a type of growth is in helps you to understand right how to approach it, uh, both from you know, even just a business case standpoint or projections 
but also from a, an approach to execution, to staffing, right? Sort of inform all kinds of things. And as you move on those axes, you move over to the, the right or you move up, right? You're, you're moving one step away from the core. You're introducing uh, variables and uncertainties that mean that you have to approach things differently. So when you're going to new markets with things you know how to deliver, there's, you know, a real, um, they're all, they should all have some test and learn, right? All have yep. uh, an agile approach and iterative development and all those things. But in that case, what you're doing is using what you've got and really quickly experimenting on into the world to say, you know, new markets, here is something that we hypothesize there might be a need state for that we can meet with what we have already. And, uh, you know, we make sure that we're testing and learning very quickly. When you move up, you know, to needing new capabilities up on the top left, you've got the need to be able to really understand what is it going to take to deliver, right? What's the feasibility uh, to create the capabilities and really right, deliver on the need state that you're reasonably sure exists. And it's generally the kind of thing called differentiation quadrant because it's generally the kind of thing that if you're staying within your industry or close to it, that everybody kind of knows is a need state that, uh, that the market wants solved, but they haven't been able, nobody's been able to really crack the code yet. So if you can do that, you have an advantage, right, for the amount of time. Right. And then if you move to the top right, right, you've got both uh, coming together in a revolutionary quadrant to say you've got a new market, so uncertainties there, you've got new capabilities and uncertainties there, and so you have the smallest amount of your effort and budget going towards uh, those activities, but they have the highest risk attached to them because of the uncertainties, but they also have the potential for the highest reward. So you have to have it balanced just like the financial portfolio across those. And, and it, the balance itself depends on the organization, but generally speaking, more bottom left, uh, least top right, and then right, the remainder gets uh, allocated across the other two quadrants. And then you have the ability to see how close it is to the core business and uh, know that for a very, very intentional strategic reason connected to and aligned with your organization's strategy, right, why anything even makes it into that portfolio in the first place. Yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate about that, that metaphor, you know, that, the kind of that portfolio approach is you know, kind of stealing from Annie Duke, but thinking in bets as well, right? It's like, we're going to spread this out. So we're all our, all our eggs aren't in one basket, but we're trying to be smart about what type of investment we, we might see. And on the culture side too, I think when it's done well, you have different people working in kind of those different horizons or different quadrants. And, and then it, I think there's a little bit more clarity for, for organizations that are disciplined about doing that. Right. Because as you, as you sometimes it's pretty haphazard, right? But when you start to you focus and you put those, those boundaries in uh, and not, not in a bad way, like don't cross, but it's like people know their lane, they know their role. And then something that's squishy, ambiguous becomes a little less ambiguous and easier to work with. But I really like the idea too of that. Again, just going back to the portfolio from an investment standpoint is, you know, this is we're, we're going to put, you know, five to 10% of our budget here. We're going to put this here. Uh, but the vast majority of it's still going to be on kind of protecting the core. Yeah. Why do you think organizations, um, why do you think they struggle with it uh, in kind of, especially, you know, because what we, what we know, what we've experienced and also what we, you know, continue to read in like innovation literature is like companies tend not to be ambitious enough. Like even though, even though we say that, you know, put a very small bet essentially on revolutionary kind of things, it's almost like they place no bets there. Uh, do you have any, any thoughts or hypotheses on, on why it, it, it's so hard to swing for the fences on an innovation perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's so not what they do, you know. I mean, organizations and people who run organizations and do it very well, by the way, um, yep. in running efficient big organization and being in charge of that from an operational standpoint, right, is not easy. It's not something everybody can do and to do it well, right, is a, a skill set and a talent, but it is completely other than, you know, doing things that are outside of the core and, and doing things where efficiency isn't the goal, you know, doing experiments and learning and knowing that failure is inherently a part of that and that you have to know how to learn from it and you have to take chances and you, but you have to do it in a way that 
you know, we find a lot of times that you either see what you just said is that there's nothing up in the top right and everything is just jammed bottom left, right? Very close yep. to the core because of the organization's tendency to want to keep it close to what they know and, and really not knowing how to do that. And then the other, the other extreme of that, which we see is you've got the stuff that's down there in the bottom left, and then there's way too much up in the top right. And it's just because people think, right, we need some moonshots. We got to swing for the fences. We got to go big, but it isn't, I mean, one, it isn't really strategically connected to the business that the organization really is in or, or even as you ladder to expose opportunity, right, to be able to expand those definitions outside of the industry lines like you were saying earlier. Um, they still aren't really connected to for really good reason in terms of um, why the initiatives exist, how they're connecting to the organization and why that organization would have a reason to be playing in that realm and winning there. And uh, they get overweighted because... It, most of the time it's because, you know, C-level folks, CEO, um, has ideas and, uh, they end up populating yep. that quadrant and people start spending time there, but not really knowing, you know, the best way to be able to approach, uh, something like that, that has those uncertainties, right. With no needing to experiment and learn and test and fail and all the things that they're not good at. They start putting either too much effort against them, right. And they start trying to build them. And uh, they have no idea if anybody wants them. They don't really know how to do it. It takes too long. They invest too much time. And by the time they start, you know, they, they poured all this time, you get the, right, the some cost fallacy. You've got the fear of like the CEO saying, where's the thing? You know, where is it? You've been working on it for how long? And then, right, it just mounts. And you get in this trick bag of having things that are just too overweighted in, you know, in either all the way jammed down towards close to the core business and keeping you kind of restricted there. or it's kind of random ad hoc behavior that just doesn't have good reason. And I think it's because right, it's right. just so foreign to what they do. Yeah. And that I know uh, one of the areas that, that I do a lot of research and explore is the kind of that just complex problem solving and collaborative problem solving in complex environments. And, and one of the things that, that I see is when organizations, it, it, they get kind of sideways because they, they've been so good at solving a technical or kind of tame, straightforward problem, right? It's not complex. Uh, in, and I know they feel complex to people. This isn't, uh, you know, like uh, devalue what people are, are, are doing, but that the complex problem is where it's like, we're not quite sure what's causing the problem. We're not even quite sure what the solution is going to be. So we're going to need to experiment. But when you've built your, your team, your culture, and your identity on that uh, kind of tame technical problem mindset, just when you had said kind of that fear of failure, what, what they've been able to do through an organization is become more predictable, right? And so that's why the CEO, like he already has a, a, a time in his, in his mind that, oh, this should be able to be, get figured out by this time because that's what we do. And, yeah. and then you're usually in those organizations, that's where, you know, the, the efficiency is what gives them value or even like, you know, like Six Sigma type programs, right? It, it, it's about reducing uh, error and it's quality control. But which is almost the antithesis to failure, right? And where where you learn from an experimentation, you you have to fail, right? And so when you start to look at those, those others, I I always see those as just being a really tough uh, organizational culture nut to to crack. Is how how do you how do you let the the failing culture coexist with kind of the um, six sigma culture, for lack of better terms? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because, you know, then you're right, CEOs, right, leaders that are within organizations like that, again, not taking anything away, it, it's, right, they're doing right. something, right, very valuable, very, very difficult, specific skill set, but it isn't this. And so then they look at those, those things that are going on in, say, revolutionary quadrant, and they say, where's, give me a business case, you know, let's see the pro forma, like, projections, let's see what it looks, what does it look like, and, you know, the answer, everybody does them but they're making all of it up because there's no way you could possibly know. Right. But explaining mm -hmm. it to someone who is, who isn't really able, I guess, to see it that way at that point in time, right. Uh, the answer of we can't give you a business case in, in this particular instance, right. Because of these factors doesn't really get you very far unless, right. It is well understood or getting what more understood. And I think it's tough from an organizational and a cultural standpoint, because the question, you know, <laughs> I mean, 
the the uh, really interesting thing so what's changed over the course of time well innovation wasn't a, really a thing right it right. wasn't a, a discipline it wasn't something that you did um you talk about growth strategy of course that's been around for forever but you know in different permutations and now it means something completely different than it did before and i, you know, I was really fortunate to be in an organization uh, where as it evolved i was able to do the same and really seeing you know the way that um you know, integrating those new ways of thinking and being able to try to you know, help organizations see the differences between right? what does it mean to you say failure is necessary, right? Everybody talks about failure, um, knowing that we're primed since what you know kindergarten or, or mm-hmm. earlier that failure is you know is bad and that you want to avoid it, and that you you know you kind of start to feel that you got to know all the answers and right and in a world where you know, even good leaders in operational uh, capacities and in massive organizations know it's best to, right, have an open mind and listen to good people, hire good people, have good collaboration teams. And uh, But then you talk about failure and they say, you know, the question that I would expect everyone in that position to ask is, who, what kind of failure, what risk, what kind of risk are you asking us to take as an organization and who within the organization should be taking which risks, you know, because uh, you can't just paint it all with one you know, broad mm-hmm. stroke. The answer is, well, the people that are responsible that fit characteristics that are best suited to do the kind of experimentation we're talking about in the, you know, the quadrants with uncertainty, uh, they are going to be taking much far different risks than Right, anybody who's very close to the core and people inside the core should be looking for new ways to do things all the time, but it's a different set of risks. I mean, I work with a lot of insurance companies and, uh, you know, seeing the looks on, on people's faces when you say things about risk and failure, you, you're saying, what do you want? You want <laughs> frontliners to take what kind of risks? Right. Like, well, you want to create a culture where you can make sure that you're leveraging the expertise and the, the knowledge and the ideas uh, that come from frontline, right? Be, especially because they're the people who are most connected to the customer, um, and enabling ways of being able to hear their opinions and creating right new ways, innovative ways of doing the business that you do. But it's very different than what's going to happen when you start to get into things that are further away from the core. Thank you, Gino. Want to uh, back up a little bit? So you said you know uh, you just, you mentioned that you're coming up on 20 years at Maddox Douglas. Uh, yeah. And that you started out in uh, kind of out of college, you it was advertising agency. Mm-hmm. Can you just walk me through kind of what brought you to the agency world, and then kind of what brought you more into kind of the the brand and, and innovation side of Matic Douglas? Sure, it's funny because I had to actually think through a little bit um, what that trajectory was. I mean, I, I grew up. Like I said, in Chicago, I was in Northwest suburbs, um, you know, an unincorporated town. So, you know, we were kind of, it was, a, it was not, uh, we didn't have like curbs and, you know, sidewalks. Yeah. And stuff. Like, they called it Mudville. So I guess there, were no, there was no asphalt or pavement for a while too. That's before me though. Um, but I bring it up because it was, you know, it was a different kind. It was a, you know, working class upbringing. Uh, my dad worked for the gas company for his entire career for people's gas. Uh, you know, my mom stayed at home. Uh, my uh, brother was, uh, I, I mean, I was always fortunate to be honest that uh, school came reasonably easy to me. The structure, right, the way school is, I was able to navigate, which I say very intentionally, as you know, Matt, right, yeah. from the work uh, with education and understanding that it's a matter of context and learning styles and right, all kinds of things. And uh, school came reasonably easy to me. And for my brother, that structure isn't really what he's good at. He doesn't thrive in that environment. He's super good with his hands, right? I knew a lot of people, a lot of my friends were really good with their hands. Uh, a lot of mechanics, I really worked in a tool and die shop. You know, always had awesome cars he was working on all the time. And I, I would fix my cars, but man, I couldn't even come close to what he was able to do. Um, and he didn't do well in school, right? And so he was um, in the working world, you know, after he graduated from high school. Uh, he ultimately made his way, uh, made a decision to become a police officer. And so he's been on the force for going on, I think it's like 25 years now. Uh, and he loves it. And he found his calling, which was 
awesome because for a while, you know, when you're trying to make the decisions coming out of high school, what are you going to do? You know, a lot of people said it was crazy for going to the academy, but he was going to take a pay cut, right? It turned out to be yeah. the best choice he ever made. But, uh, you know, my trajectory in terms of following it, you know, behind him and seeing, you know, I mean, neither of my parents were college graduates, didn't, uh, didn't go to college and uh, my brother didn't. And so I really was questioning whether or not I was going to end up going to college, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, I played in a rock band in high school, um, kind of trying to figure things out and knowing that, uh, ultimately if I did go to school, I would go to Oakland community college. Um, which is what I ended up doing. And I ended up going there for uh, marketing and advertising. Well, in honesty, there were a couple of courses I took in high school that uh, some of the teachers said, hey, you'd be good at this. And I, the, the distributed education program, the uh, DECA awards, I did pretty well there. And I was like, well, I guess I could do that. And honestly, to, to be totally honest, man, I mean, we've, again, the work with right ACT and with yeah. education and lack of visibility into real alternatives is, you know, is a thing. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that like you could have a job in science. I don't know what that looked like. I had no idea. Right. Um, I, I really didn't know that much about what the, uh, the options were. And I was like marketing advertising. I always liked, you know, I was always in the uh, interest in art and right? in levels of creativity. And, um, you know, I was like, I could probably do that. And so that was the very, <laughs> very thoughtful reason why I ended up going into this line of work, right? And um, and then so I I went to Oakton, and then I I, I transferred to DePaul and commuted downtown right in the back while I was working, and um, and got my degree from DePaul in, uh, in marketing and advertising, and. Um, and honestly, I tell you, I had a far better education at Oakton than I did at DePaul. Um, I only went to DePaul so I get the piece of paper. Yeah, Oakton um, turned out to be a phenomenal experience. Uh, it's just—it's funny to me how people see community colleges nowadays. Um, anyway, so I went into it because of that. I ended up going, you know, to Oakton, then going to DePaul. And while I was at DePaul, I got an internship at an agency in the city in Old Town. Um, and uh, intentionally didn't want to go to a big, like, Leo Burnett-sized place because I figured I'd learn a whole lot more and wouldn't end up being a number if I went to a mid-sized small place. And so uh, got an internship. They offered me a part-time role. Then offered me a job coming out of school, you know, making, like, 18 grand a year. <laughs> um, and uh, I was there for probably, I don't know, eight, nine years and doing advertising, being an account guy, uh, struggling then. Uh, with making sure that I was able to, you know, be a part of the creative process and strategy before there were, you know, things they called planners in that right, world. Right, right. Where strategy is, you know, is critically important and uh, wanting to be part of how, right, the message is integrated and delivering against the intention. And so um, at a certain point, I mean, the agency world has been, it may still uh, be this way. I don't know. Uh, very cynical, very, uh, very, um, you know, divided between account people and creative, uh, which is a shame. I'm, I work with some unbelievable people that I had wonderful relationships with, but the, the kind of division between the territories and everything just was, is counterproductive. And, um, there were also just some other elements of, of that, environment where I was like, I'm, you know, it's time for me to move on. And I found, uh, I found Manic Douglas. And uh, at the time, uh, they were very focused solely on, on design and moving and transition from being a design firm, uh, doing packaging work and, and uh, a very design specific uh, work for clients. And we're trying to move towards a more strategic uh, agency-like model. And so I started you know, there doing that about 20 years ago. And then over the course of time, uh, Maddock Douglas, Mike Maddock, um, and, uh, and others in leadership uh, started to realize and see, right, as we all did, the shift that you couldn't just market your way out of, uh, out of a bad idea, right, out of incongruity <laughs> right. with uh, who the organization was, the brand means everything. Um, not just what you say to the world um, and then not deliver on. And so we continued to build the capabilities um, 
many others in the organization, honestly, uh, even before me, capabilities to deliver new products, you know, services, business models, um, helping with the cultural elements we're talking about and developing, right? A lot of the uh, the mentality from a design thinking and human-centered design standpoint to help organizations kind of see the way to be able to deliver on those things and need states in the marketplace that are uh, aligned with their their brand and then ultimately helping them market and communicate those to the world. Um, so I was doing positioning, uh, brand strategy work. I still do positioning, brand strategy work, and I love it. Um, it just means something different now because it's more integrated. Um, right. Holistic view. Um, and, you know, it, there was a point in time, I feel like this is a very long story, so you know, <laughs> cut me off if you want. Um, there was a point in time when I had to make a very conscious decision about whether or not I was going to anchor in on what I knew to do which was advertising marketing campaign development brand strategy that i i like doing i loved it um or if i was going to you know kind of go all in with innovation and with uh kind of this new world and new skill set and all of that and i made the decision that i was all in because honestly i just i, I didn't want to become a dinosaur yeah Literally. you know i was afraid that you know i'd be you know this age now <laughs> 50 right um, or older and all of a sudden you know it wouldn't be as valued anymore. so um, I was able to evolve and grow and I just I dove in and I learned a ton and you know I now you know, got the ability to, to work in the world of innovation and you know then translating like I said brand strategy and, and uh, all of that you know work that's kind of in that bundle uh, into what ultimately was developed you know, I developed into a growth strategy uh, way of approaching things that's you know human centered, um, and helps organizations right see it in a more kind of holistic level and in, in terms of strategically what should they what uh, adjacencies and places should they be looking at in the first place and then how to be able to see it in the context of portfolio and all the things we talked about. Yeah, and when you said not wanting to be a dinosaur. Right. And, 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 and looking at something consciously or intentionally it was just making me, th- I, I saw something recently. It was, um, uh, Jeff, I'll always get his, I don't think I'll pronounce his name correctly. Uh, Jeff Gothalf, he did like lean UX and, uh, sense and respond with, uh, Sidon. He, he co-authors with Sidon a lot, but, uh, his new book is forever employable. And it does, it's, it does talk about that, that premise about like how, um, you know, the, the world of employment and in work isn't, isn't the same as it was. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a big, a big struggle. And, you know, I grew up in a, a, a very much a, a blue collar working class city that for generations was able to produce great jobs and, you know, wonderful middle-class life for people that were furniture makers and worked in factories for, you know, small metal fasteners. Right. But as those went away, the community, struggled still struggles in how to make itself uh relevant vibrant and and again not say anything bad about the people there right there's tremendous people but it's you i see it in organizations i see it with communities is sometimes they just they try to lock in and do the same thing and then a variable changes and it's like their ecosystem falls apart and so yeah i feel like you know it's, it's interesting because a lot of what i think you help companies with, I feel like you've, you, you, you've been eating your own dog food, right? You, you kind of look at it too, like yourself, like how do I remain viable? What is, you know, what's, what's interesting, what's important and how might I, you know, kind of test this, right? So we all, we all have to keep doing the, these uh, kind of hypothesis testing ourselves. Well, you know, I mean, it's a great point, man. I, I think that it's interesting because now I'm, I'm going to, I feel more philosophical right before I was, oh, talking about portfolio and all that. I think that that's the most important thing. Um, I think I've said this to you before. I mean, the mo- the, the thing that I do is just keep going, you know, and keep yeah. trying. And I think that's more important than anything else. And the, the one thing that can stop you, well, there's a few things that can stop you from continuing to try. Right? One is not having the hope or belief that, you can actually do it and make a difference, right? And get there on the other side. Uh, 
and the other, well, maybe they're all wrapped up in that, to be honest with you. Maybe it's just a, a lack of the either visibility, right, information, knowledge, help, assistance, uh, which ultimately lead to lack of belief, right, and understanding of how you can actually get there. And it's critical for people. It's critical for companies. You know, all the stats about Fortune 500, tenure, and, you know, whatever. Look at them all. It's like they're... The, the time horizon for organizations to be around is shrinking. It, mm-hmm. it will continue. The fragmentation will continue. And uh, organizations will need to figure it out, right, and be able to, to uh, learn the new skills. Individuals, right, and we all hear that the robots are coming and AI is going to, you know, put tons of people out, out of work. And uh, I don't know if you read, uh, have you read Harari's books? No. Uh, we'll say and, uh, no. We do in the 21st century, I can remember that. Anyway, they're fantastic. And, you know, he talks about that in, in those books too. It's like the, you know, the reality is that there are skill sets though, right? Like design thinking skill sets and ways of being able to go about delivering value that are other than what people are used to. And I personally, I mean, the reason why, like my why and the reason I do what I do is to just help good people keep going. Um, and that means that I can help them with a growth strategy in an organization to maintain their viability and relevance and competitive, uh, competitiveness into the future, then right, I'll do that. If it means being able to help them understand the skills that are necessary, uh, that I've been fortunate enough to learn, uh, um, and do so with one organization and not have to be jumping around and kind of flailing. Um, if I can shortcut that and help them see what it means to be able to, to use those skills of design thinking um, to create new ways of delivering value and getting, you know, use skills, re, recombine them in ways, right, that you can uh, reapply them and put them into another context and deliver some value and, and ultimately, quite frankly, I mean, earn some money, right, versus uh, feeling like you don't have choice. Right. Um, and that was kind of the feeling that I was having in terms of, you know, they say being a dinosaur, it's like, is being able to continually learn. I mean, I, I, you, you're like this too. I mean, I, I love taking in all kinds of information. I just wrote down forever employable. Now I got another book on my list. Right? <laughs> but that is like the taking in new information and making sure that you're learning and seeing how to keep up uh, with a world that is changing very quickly um, is critical. And for people who aren't able to see it for a million reasons, you know, doesn't mean anything about, like you said, about the people of Rockford, people of anywhere, people within organizations that are trying to still do the same thing or apply the same skills and approaches, right, that to new things, which just aren't going to work. Um, I remember a presentation you did where you talked about, uh, you know, trying to put out a fire when every fire you've seen, right, you use water or fire extinguisher until you meet a grease fire, right, and then it turns pretty ugly. Um, it does not do what you expected it to do because it does, they don't apply. Right. The thing, yeah. What, what, what made you successful in the past can actually make things worse in a new context. Right. Like the creating a business case for things you have no idea about, right? Like how can you do that? Well, you put some numbers down. It's just like the, so the, the human centered approach to, uh, to growth strategy, for instance, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times I get into conversations where people are like, well, and that isn't how it's taught in the MBA programs. And I was like, I know, I know. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who are really, really good at that. That you know, you don't need more of that, do you? Um, or I can help you with finding those people. I know them, right? That's not what I do. I use data, obviously, and market information. But I'm going to start from a human-centered, right, from a desirability uh, standpoint, always. And it feels very uncomfortable because, you know, leaders are used to using market data, whatever, historical data. And I'm telling you, I mean, more and more in today's world, and as we continue to move into, right, just more and more speed and more complexity, looking at the numbers and looking at the markets and, you know, the definitions of industries and all of that, it just, it doesn't do anybody any good because you're looking at stuff that doesn't, it doesn't inform decisions. Well, and I... Yeah, and I'll you know I'll, I'll push on that a little a little bit too to say that I think sometimes when people are using those numbers for business cases because a lot of times those are made up right when, especially when it's it's more innovative type stuff 
but I, I think it puts a false sense of uh, yeah. calmness and clarity on the issue that isn't that like it, it may, Oh yeah. And it's, yeah. It, it almost, it's like you're, uh, you're kind of faking some of these things. And so then you don't really appreciate kind of how complex something might be or the work that needs to get done. And then, then everybody goes on like it's business as usual. And then they all just scratch their heads right? when it's over. Oh, I guess it didn't work, but, but we have right. the numbers. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, what's interesting about that too, is that people talk about organizations talking about experimentation and we're going to do that. And it's very hard for organizations to actually learn from experiments, right? One, mm-hmm. they have a hypothesis they're actually testing to see if it works or not, boiling it down to the, you know, as MVP as you can get it um, and doing something to really find out whether or not it did what you thought it was going to do or not. And then if it didn't, learning from it and moving on versus just kind of sweeping under the rug. Cause that's what, what happens. And it's just, it's, I think it's human nature. But it's also the way that business runs. It's the way business works. It didn't work. Right. Get rid of it. Nobody wants to admit that it didn't work. Right. Um, but in this case, you really have to you know go out and, and do those kinds of experiments knowing you're going to fail. And when people start to put numbers in, right, you're going to make them up and they're going to look pretty good by the way. Because why would you put in bad numbers? And then by the time you start putting effort against, like I said before, it starts to take on a life of its own because then the expectations have been set you know, to a level that of certainty and reliability that just are not, that weren't realistic. And so yeah. you, you get in a bag, you know? Yeah, that, fall, that make, kind of that false sense of... Um... Uh, predictability, you know, uh, one of, and you had mentioned MVP and I, I find that to be super challenging and, and, um, friend of mine had pointed out recently too, like when I'm listening to folks, even the difference between, are they, are they saying minimal viable <laughs> or are they saying minimum, right? Because, and then thinking like when you have a bank account, there might be a minimum balance. It means that at least there's some threshold where I think a lot of times, folks are using MVP as an excuse just to like throw anything out there that there really are, there aren't minimum standards. It's just meant like, ah, let's just do something small. Right. And I, me personally, I I think MVPs, uh, the, I love lean principles. And as you know, like for me, small, what's the smallest thing we can can test so that we keep going in the right direction. But MVPs, I think do so much, so much damage internally as far as being able to get good quality work and learning happening i think yeah i think it's this i think it's uh in a lot of ways a misunderstanding right about not yeah. really standing and digging deep enough into understanding what it really means people kind of take it and they go and that, it means that we can just do whatever and throw it out there and you can learn from it which learning is good it's better than not learning it's better <laughs> than taking too long and building something nobody wants right it's right much more but and you have to have you have to put thought to it and, and chunk it up into pieces that uh, that make sense and you're doing it with intention and prioritizing right? what are the hypotheses what are the things we think really have the most what do we have to learn right and prioritize those things uh, and then start knocking them down that's not what organizations are very good at um, and so I'm with you I think that the misunderstandings there's a lot of misunderstandings that people think they've got it you know take it they don't you know they're they're they shortcut some things because maybe they have to, whatever. Right. Um, and then it doesn't turn out the way that they wanted. And then it just becomes a, a failure. And then they turn around and they say, all right, well, we're not doing that again. Yeah. Yep. Done right in the first place. So a couple, a couple, uh, Illinois questions for, you, even though this is the Iowa idea podcast, uh, favorite socks team. Mm. What, 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 what era, what years? Well, it's hard for me not to go with 05, right? Yeah, right. I, you know, right now I'm feeling the pain in 94. Love yeah. Frank. Big Herd's birthday was two days ago. Yeah. Um, Got to go with the 94 team. Yeah, that was a fun fun team. With both, both 05 and, and the 94 team, right? Tremendous kind of, uh, you know, battery of pitchers and some awesome catchers in, in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard not to with 2000. I mean, just like <laughs> almost a century <laughs> without a series and then bringing that home. And I love, yeah. I mean, it's just an example that team, by the way, I mean, you know, being a Sox fan as you are, 
the uh, I, I am, I'm a sucker for underdogs, by the way, Matt. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I want to I remove asymmetries in life. You know, yeah. I want to do whatever I can, right? And it's interesting, right, being a White Sox fan, that if, if I wasn't and I got to choose teams, I'd probably pick them anyway because they're like the underdog in Major League Baseball. You know, right. you get forgotten in this city and – and those teams were, you know, really outside of you know, somebody like Canerco, which was not, you know, he's not flashy, he's working class. That's the kind of thing that I can rally around, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and you had to appreciate Polly's uh, ability to stretch a, a double into a single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> uh, okay, and then uh, this was unexpected, but a theme that is starting to pop up now on on the podcast is uh, cheap trick. Where do, where do you fall on the trick? Oh, love cheap trick, man. When I was a kid, <laughs> yes. so my brother and I, here we go. My brother and I, we we both had long hair. Um, yeah, and I had it quite frankly because he had it. Right, I said it was following his footsteps, and uh, and he had. We both had blonde hair. His was blonder than mine, and we wanted to be Robin Zander. I swear, man. Like <laughs> try and make our hair blonder with both kids. Love cheap trick. Love cheap trick. Uh, you're right. I mean, working class. And even in some of the podcasts that I've listened to, that you've talked to people about cheap trick. I mean, I loved them as kid, as a kid, and uh, they've stuck with me because I don't know. They're just a, a working class, right? Care about their craft. Band. Yeah. They're not. They didn't. They got maybe when you get to the flame era, maybe a little bit. But you know, I mean, they just they they're they're craftsmen. They're they were trying. They continually to try to play and. I don't know. I, I love respect for him. Love him. Yeah. They, and that was like, like you said, though, like just putting the reps in and the effort, like those early days, I mean, two, 200, 250 shows a year that they're just, they were just like on the road honing their craft for such a long time. And I don't know if uh, I discussed this with you before, but uh, years ago, uh, maybe, maybe 10, 15 years ago, Longer, there was something called Bunny in a Box. It was uh, Steve Albini had recorded uh, Bunny Carlos doing drum loops. So you could, like, like, these were the early days of like you could start to get stems for music and drop these in. But you, so basically, uh, different, different beats and fills. So it was kind of like you could use Bunny Carlos as your drummer. But I remember reading the notes on it from Albini, and he said he had put uh, new drum heads out. And then when they were done, he said on each drum head, you probably could put like a, a half dollar and all of all of the, the, the stick marks were within that from, from, but he's so, he's so precise and which I find it's funny because you know, his, his vibe is he looks kind of sloppy, right? He had the undone tie, the cigarette hanging out. But uh, then when you look at his work, it's like pure precision. And yet he looked like he was in the, you know, some sort of one of the technical jobs we were talking about in terms of <laughs> something like being an accountant that heard come up too. It's like, and yet he had the cigarette. Yeah. But I mean, you're right. I mean, it was before the time, I guess before videos, it's yeah. still what they looked like, but I mean, he was always such an outlier. So it was Rick. I mean, that's what made him different. You know, I love it. So one one other thing we talk about a lot on uh, the podcast is uh, kind of advice uh, and the idea that when you're giving advice, it's usually you talking to your younger self. But uh, is there any good advice that you receive from a mentor that still sticks with you today? Um, you know, uh, not really, to be honest with you, not in, not in that context. Yeah. Um, which I, I know I'm being completely, you know, insensitive to lots of people who <laughs> great advice that I can't think of right now. Most of most of the advice, I guess I would say that I, that I follow and that I listen to and that uh, I find to be critical, right. And carry with me is stuff that I've read, you know, yeah. from you know, different sources. Like when you think about mastery, you know, think about wooden, you know, what the definition or even, you know, even, ideas of you know like chop wood carry water you know the kind of like trying to to make sure that you're in right the mindset of letting go of the outcomes right i know you there's language right outputs and outcomes yep yep different, but like when you're letting go of the outcomes like my son you know plays baseball and uh, you know baseball is a, a sport of failure and uh you know the, to get used to 
uh, you know, embracing the fact that you can put in the effort and you can control what you can control. And uh, you, but you can't control the outcomes. You can just know that you're going to go up there each time and do your, you know, have put in the work. Yeah. And then, uh, go up there and right and do what you know you can do to try to affect, right? And realize not come, but that you can't, you know, if you hit a laser beam and it gets caught, it's the same thing as, you know, hitting a dribbler, uh, which also happens, right? But right. you got to to be able to forget about it and know that you, you need to keep on kind of honing and, uh, doing like Wooden says, you know, a bunch of small things done well, added up over time, right? That most people think are too small to matter. You keep doing those things. And that's really the most important. And anybody yeah. can do those things. I mean, you're not all, you're not always going to turn into, you know, greatness from it. Uh, some people right, will, some people won't for a million different other, you know, other reasons that uh, combine, but you can control that and you can control the effort you put in. You can control, you know, the way that you, uh, look at it in terms of, uh, you know, driving a wedge in between right, the uh, any kind of stimulus and a response. Just that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that really is most useful to me in terms of reminding myself not to be so hard on myself, you know, not to uh, listen to my inner voice, but to yeah. actually talk to myself um, and know that that's what's happening. Um, you know, just reminders of being, you know, to be kind right? Remind myself of, of how grateful I am, you know, just, just making sure that I don't get sucked into the dumbness, <laughs> you know, that I, you get sucked yeah. into and thinking like, you know, like I got to have more stuff or I, I got to beat that person or whatever. It's like, no, right. I am super fortunate. And, uh, having those kinds of reminders for me, I'm going to have a little card in front of me right now that I just looked at that. I have these kinds of things on there because, you can't, I don't know, you forget them. I don't know how you forget them, but you start to forget them. And I, I want to make sure that I don't. And it's the kind of things that that try to help my kids, you know, shortcut whatever I can for them um, and model that behavior for them to say, one, I can, obviously I screw up a lot um, and let them know it and know that it, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm broken, you know, right. Right. I can keep learning. I can keep trying. Those are the two things I can do. And, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that for me are the most, I don't know, the most impactful. I feel bad that I'm not, you know, calling any individual out, but so many people yeah. right, have so much of an impact on your life and you can't like think, I've met so, I've worked with so many great people and right, there's been so many people that I have learned and taken things from that whether they know they've given me advice or not, right, and I've, I've kind of internalized it. Um, but it's hard to identify those individuals, you know, because it's like, right, right combination of all that it just becomes part of the fabric right totally so when you you were talking about your son and baseball just something too that i don't are you familiar with the book zen and the art of archery zen and the art of archery yeah no but i have feeling like maybe the story is in like uh chop wood carry water or something it feels familiar but and just the reason the reason i was bringing that up is um uh, Nate Kading, who used to be a kicker at the University of Iowa, and then for nine years until had a horrible knee injury, was uh, you know a pretty successful NFL kicker uh, for the Chargers. And uh, recently, I was talking to him, and uh, he's he, one of the things he does on the side is he's a, a kicker's coach for the Vikings. And but he talked about uh, in his college days uh, a coach giving him this book, and and what it was, it, you weren't really focused on the exact outcome, right? Did, did you, did you kick the field goal or not? It is about, it was about the process. It was about addressing the ball, swinging through, right? And it, and it was, and so when you were saying that working on all these small parts, it was like, you just, you just keep honing these and coordinating these and the rest will come. And it was, but putting, putting in that diligence on really thinking about his practice and taking a Zen-like approach to it, uh, that it still wasn't about the outcome. It was about the process and keep working the process. Uh, and he said how even just depending on game situation or where the ball was, he even had like routines on the sideline. And that was part of what would keep him from getting overwhelmed by, you know, loud, loud crowds or the kind of the, the moment. So, uh, that one well, I thought was interesting, but like you said, you know, it's like the, it sounds, it sounds like some wooden stuff too, right? Is all, all these small things together do add up. Well, you know, 
I mean, it's interesting because I'm, I was just flipping through the, uh, the book I was referencing because, I mean, it is about, it's the things that you do. And one of the lines from this book too is, you know, that the, uh, you don't rise to the uh, occasion, right? You rise to the level of your training, right? Of the of yeah. your preparation, right? The bright lights, you don't shine in their bright lights. Uh, what they do is they expose the work you've done in the dark, you know, that kind of mentality of, you got to put in the work, you got to do the work and you have to do it to the extent that you're able to focus on doing those things, you know, you, you need to do to be able to right, get yourself into the right position when the time comes. And there's a lot of stuff that can get in your head when the time comes yeah, and, right. and it doesn't have to be a, you know, a kick, you know, a last second kick by a, a kicker in the NFL. I mean, right. I feel it all the time, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many other people do. I'm sure you know people feel it in all different ways, but I feel like it's, I have a responsibility. I feel a lot of, um, I, I, I need to be sure that I'm delivering on what I'm promising people, right. That, that I'm going to deliver and I'm going to yep. do everything I can to do the best I can to deliver it. And so I feel like in those moments of whatever my you know, field goal attempts are, um, I've got to know that I've done the work and I've turned as many rocks and stones over as I can to think it through. And um, if I don't, then I'm going to have a lot of stuff going on in my head, you know, and a lot of it isn't going to be that good. Just like a kicker, they don't have that ability and the mindset and everything. You're probably like, oh my God, I should probably not miss this, right? <laughs> right. Pretty much the recipe for missing it. I would, you know. So I think it's uh. critically important. It's also about keeping making sure that you're controlling what you can and letting go of the rest, which by the way, I'm terrible at all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I try to remind myself of it all the time and try to make sure that I, I admit that, right. And acknowledge that, and, you know, help whatever I can shortcut for my kids, right. Instead of learning on their own and they're better than me anyway. So they'll, they'll figure it all out. But if I can shortcut anything, cause I'm old, I'll do it. Uh, but I think that stuff is just, it's so critical because you've got so much stuff going on in your head and so many questions about, it took me a long time to figure out that everybody didn't know what they were talking about, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> digging through and even things like, uh, talk about innovation as a buzzword or right? you're talking about positioning, value propositions, um, brand, you know, brand strategies and essences and promises and like all the words you get thrown around and you think that people all have these very specific definitions and they don't and, right. and people haven't thought about it hard enough and and kind of i don't know put a stake in the ground to say this is what i this is what i mean by this right but so i was like well i could either continue to kind of play that vague game or i can just do that i can define them and say this is how i'm defining them i could be wrong right somebody could disagree yeah. with you. it you can't disagree with the way I believe they should be defined, right? And this is how I use them and this is how we're going to understand them. Now let's go, right? Yeah. With a common understanding. It doesn't matter if I'm right or I'm wrong. Here's what we mean. Let's agree we mean that. And now let's move forward because those are the building blocks. And it took a long time for me to acknowledge that. I remember a quote from, that you said years ago, man. Um, <laughs> like when you were young, you thought everybody knew everything. Yeah. But then you realized, I don't know, then you got to, yeah, exactly. It was actually from my uncle, right? It was, uh, it was like breaking up your, breaking up uh, academic degrees. But when you get your bachelor's, you think you know everything. When you get your master's, you realize you didn't know anything. And uh, when you get your PhD, you realize nobody knows anything. It's <laughs> exactly what it was, right on. Yeah. And so, you know, it's in, it, which is funny, but I've remembered it. <laughs> I can't say it, right? But I, the, I understood the idea. Man. Uh, but it's important to know that. I mean, we, we live in a world that we made, people like us made, we defined all these things. We said industries have these definitions and corporations are supposed to look like this and they do this thing. And it's like, man, it ain't that old, right? And right. we can look at it in new ways and different ways. It's just, it's hard, you know? And so to remind yourself that, you know, one, that that's possible, that um, the way that you see something, you know, if it isn't, conventional right that's okay um it's tough though it takes a lot of guts to to still go down a path where things are you know one more difficult harder a little more uncertainties uh, and when they aren't that popular or well understood uh and i'm not saying about myself i'm saying right. it's tough for people within organizations unless you know how important it is 
you can't, you know, that you don't stop because it's that critical to the, either your own personal evolution and development of uh, skills that will help you be right, relevant in the world, or if it's company, or if it's, you know, whatever other motivation, it's got to be important enough. And then you just dig in and make sure that, uh, you know, you keep going with the right mindsets. And that's why I say, I mean, I, yeah. I, remind myself of and I try to ultimately help is whatever do whatever I can to make sure that people are trying to make positive change right don't stop and keep going I think into what you said mindset right I think that is especially in a more chaotic world is like one of the things that can make it less chaotic is more it's more mindset than like specific uh expectations or specific outcomes but if you have more of a mindset to deal with it I think you you take a little bit more control yeah yeah, totally. Well, and you become more open right, to uh, other people's perspectives and all the things that we know are good in terms of you know, empathy and collaboration and diversity of thought and getting different perspectives. I mean, you have to be in the right mindset to be able to allow those things to really do with you know, the power that they have, right? to let them do what they do. And uh, a lot of people are wired right, to be knowers, and especially when you, you reach a certain point in your life, I guess, you're supposed to know the answer. Right. You know, see it. And, right? <laughs> the best leaders, especially today, are ones that, you know, at times say, I don't, I don't have the answer. But what I do know is I've got right, this team or well, let's go find the answer. Let's yep. figure it out uh, because there's no way you can know all the answers now. Gino, I want to thank you. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always great. Always great to chat with you, but I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the, the podcast and talk with us here. Man, it was uh, my absolute pleasure. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit and I, I am not always super comfortable as an introvert doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, then when I start talking, we start talking about all this. It's, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Again, yeah, thank you. And hey, enjoy the rest of your day. Have a fantastic uh, birthday and congratulations on 50 laps around the sun. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to keep going, man. I'm there you keep go. Going. <laughs> All, All right. right. You take care.